Okay, happy Father's Day. Uh, Second Chronicles, please. We are in chapter 19. We can turn there. Now, this morning, we are doing our third study on the life of King Jehoshaphat. Uh, as we've been looking through these kings here, one of the things you'll notice is most of the kings get about a chapter's worth of coverage. Most of the kings of Judah, that is. Uh, Solomon got something like eight chapters. Uh, you're going to see a little bit later a guy named Hezekiah. He gets something like four or five chapters. And Jehoshaphat gets four chapters um, of attention, if you will. So he's a significant character in the scripture. This will be our third study of Jehoshaphat's life. Uh, and the scripture tells us that Jehoshaphat was a godly man, that he sought to honor the Lord with his life. It says in Second uh, Chronicles 17 that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because Jehoshaphat was with the Lord. It says he walked in the earlier ways of his father. He did not seek the Baals, but he sought the God of his father, and he walked in his commandments and not according to the practices of Israel, specifically of the kings of Israel and the idolatry that was so prevalent there in the north. So he's a good man. He, he's doing the best he can, if you will. He's seeking after the Lord, but he's not a perfect man. And so we've already seen an example in chapter 18 of how he allies himself with a king, uh, Ahab, which he never should have. We already saw that despite that misstep, that God preserved him. That he calls out to God, you may recall his, his scream was sort of like, help, and God comes and he helps him miraculously, and he spares Jehoshaphat's life. So he's a good man, but not a perfect man. And as we come now in chapter 19 and into chapter 20, we're going to see the end of this fellow's life and what God did in him. And I think there's some valuable lessons for us as we seek to be people, not perfect, but trying at least to honor the Lord. So let's pray, and then we'll turn to our passage. Father, we thank you. Uh, for Jehoshaphat's life. We thank you that we can learn lessons. But I, I thank you that the scripture is honest. It doesn't paint some picture of everyone being completely perfect uh, because we're not, and we know it. Lord, we know that we fail. We know we stumble. We know we fall short, Lord, even of our own high standards. And Lord, we thank you that you're a merciful, forgiving, and loving God, and that you use those circumstances in our lives to teach us and to grow us and kind of dust us off and, and set us back on that path again. And so, Father, we pray for the word today as it goes forth, Lord, that it would teach us. Lord, regardless of where we're at today, some of us might be doing very well and sort of walking high, and others of us might be in a, a low place right now and having had a week or more of struggle. Uh, but, Lord, we pray that your word would come to us in the place that we're at, and you would teach us, and you would set us on, Lord, a new course and a new path, if that need be the case. So bless the word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 says, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, wrath has gone out against you from the Lord. Nevertheless, some good is found in you, for you destroyed the Asherahs out of the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. So here... Again, if you weren't with us last week, uh, Jehoshaphat went into a battle uh, with an ally, a wicked king. Why he was aligned with this fellow, who knows? We, we've thrown some conjectures as to why it could possibly be. But he, he joins himself up with Ahab, uh, and as a result, there's sort of a judgment that comes, where God's like, what are you doing? You can't be with this particular fellow. He cries out to God, God delivers him. But on the way home now, he's making his way, whew, can't believe we got out of that one. He's making his way home, and a prophet comes, 
And if you will, you saw it, he rebukes him. He says, should you help the wicked uh, and love those who hate the Lord? Now, very similar, if you've been with us, you know back in, I guess it was chapter 16, a story there where King Asa is returning from sort of an ill-advised alliance that he was part of, and he encounters a prophet. And in that instance there, the prophet rebukes him, and Asa's response, Jehoshaphat's dad, Asa, his response is to harden his heart. I don't know who you are coming and telling me what I can do and what I can't do. I'm the king. And he hardens his heart. He says he puts the guy uh, in prison. And we see the result of Asa's hardening of his heart in that instance. From that point on, he becomes a very bitter, a very hard, a very cruel man. And it's like, Asa, you changed, buddy. 35 years, you were awesome. And now all of a sudden, we don't like you as our king anymore because he became this embittered, hard man. We actually saw at the end of chapter 16 that Asa's pride was eventually what caused his death. So now here's Jehoshaphat in a very similar circumstance to his father, the predecessor king, and he has a prophet that comes and speaks to him and rebukes him and essentially says to him, you were wrong in this thing that you've done. A lot of people don't tell the king that he's wrong, but this prophet does. And it's interesting to me to see how Jehoshaphat, faced with the same circumstances, responds. He's the one now that stands exposed no doubt, he saw what his dad did. He understood. He took notice of the way his dad responded. He was aware of how his dad's heart had become proud and how he began to treat the people harshly. And the passage doesn't explicitly say so, but in his actions, it becomes pretty clear here that it indicates his response. And his response was one of repentance. Now, repentance is a big word. We use it a lot, and, and perhaps we don't. I think it has something to do with saying sorry or something like that. Uh, repentance is the idea of acknowledging sin. So it's as if, if I came to you and I said, you know, you're a real jerk. I can't believe you, you did that, Linda. You're horrible. No, I'm kidding. But, I, you know, I can't believe you acted that way. I can't believe you did that particular thing. And I called you out on something. If you were to say, you know, you're right. I, I can't believe I did that. You know, I'm not going to do it anymore. And I'm going to walk sort of a new direction. Well, God's Holy Spirit comes and he puts that pressure on us. He convicts us of our sin. He says to us, you know, you were wrong. You shouldn't treat your brother like that. You know, you're wrong. You shouldn't treat your wife like that. You know, you shouldn't be doing this particular thing over here. The conviction comes, and when we acknowledge that, when we say, you know what, God, you're right. I don't know why I keep doing that. And I'm tired of excuses. Well, it's because I'm Irish and we get hot-tempered or, or something like that. I'm tired of the excuses. God, you're right. I'm not doing it anymore. That is repentance. So really, you might say it's this idea of acknowledging, agreeing with God. And though the passage doesn't specifically come out and say that Jehoshaphat did that, you begin to see by his actions that he's in a right place with God. So this prophet comes, convicts him, if you will, of his sin. He agrees, he repents, he acknowledges and repents, and he begins to walk in a new way. That is what we need to be. We need to be a people. When God convicts us of our sin, we acknowledge it as such. I, have, I had more so, maybe a little bit nowadays, but more so... Uh, in my early years in walking with the Lord, where I would do everything I could to defend my sin, whether it's my sin against another person, whether it's my sin against God, all sorts of excuses, and God, you don't understand, and honey, if you didn't, you know, one of these sorts of things. And finally, I remember the freedom. It was an argument I told some of you about apple pie and pumpkin pie. And I remember the freedom of finally being able to acknowledge, you know what, you're right. I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. 
and being able to just sort of move forward, agreeing and not having to defend myself anymore, agreeing that it was sin. Jehoshaphat does that, and God can bless that. Your heart is in the right place. So as you continue to look, notice what God begins to do through Jehoshaphat. Verse 4, it says, Jehoshaphat lived at Jerusalem. He went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He went out to the hill country of Ephraim, and he brought them back to the Lord. You know, unfortunately, one of the saddest consequences of our sin is the effect that it can have on other people. You know, it's one thing when it affects your own life. It's another thing when it affects the life of your kids or the life of your spouse or the life of your coworkers, or the life of other people that come into contact with you. And it seems in this particular instance here that Ephraim had gone astray, at least partially as a result of Jehoshaphat's decision to ally themselves with Ahab. Now, if you don't remember Ephraim, Ephraim is the, one of the largest, if not the largest, of the tribes of the northern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom. One of the things we saw during Asa's reign, Asa is the father of Jehoshaphat, during his reign, that there was sort of this spirit of reform, this period of repentance that was going on in the southern kingdom, so much so that many of the tribes of the northern kingdom began to observe what was going on there, and they said, you know what, we want to be with you guys. And it specifically says, somewhere in chapter 16, that a bunch of the folks from Ephraim made their way down into the south. They began to repent of their sin and, and their idolatry and all these sorts of things. Well, it seems at this point that they have slidden back into that old form of idolatry here. And perhaps, at least to some degree, Jehoshaphat may be partially responsible for that. Because Jehoshaphat had allied himself with this wicked king who was doing all these sorts of other things. And somewhere along the line, when someone that's in leadership or someone that is a model or someone that is an example starts to make little compromises in their life that maybe they can get by with, and, you know, it's just a little compromise, no big deal. But what tends to happen is others begin to observe that. And they begin to say, well, if the pastor is compromising there, or if mom and dad are compromising there, or if my youth group leader is compromising in that, I guess it's okay for me. And sadly, what begins to happen is you may have this little bit of compromise, but then they might go way over here and compromise. And they get themselves into trouble, and the next thing you know, they have slidden away in their relationship with the Lord. And so here you have the example. Jehoshaphat has to do the hard, humbling work of going to these folks, letting them know that he sinned, that he was wrong, and that he's repented of that sin, and then encouraging them to walk in the ways that they once walked before. He points them in the right direction. He was, you may remember, a reformer king. Just a few of them in Judah, five or six of them. But he was a reformer king. And that is that means that he wanted to bring spiritual reform, get rid of the idolatry, also moral reform, where people are living a life that thinks, essentially what Jesus said, do unto others, as you would have them do. They think about other people, they care about other people, and not just themselves. And so, as we move on to verse 5, what you'll see, the first thing that he tries to do, or seeks to do, is establish a system of justice in the society. Justice that wouldn't be dependent on who you know, or how much money you have, but rather on what is right. A system of justice. Look at verse 5. It says, He appointed judges in the land and in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you do. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. 
For there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or the taking of bribes. One commentator I read said that those words, consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord, and I'll let the fear of the Lord be upon you, that those words should be posted in every law school and above every judge's bench in our nation. And I think he's right. G. Campbell Morgan said, those who are called upon at any time and in any way to administer justice are acting for God and not for man. They're not seeking to serve men, but to maintain the strict cause of justice, which is to be measured only by divine standards. This, the scripture is clear that the Lord cares about the cause of justice. He expects it for us as individuals. So the way that we treat people, honoring not just because you are a person of honor, just, just behavior, not just because I can get something from you, but because you're a fellow human being. He expects it. It says in Micah chapter 6, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. This is what God wants from you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. But not only does God expect it of individuals, He requires it of nations, particularly the nation He was building, the nation of Israel. And so he says in Isaiah chapter 10, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless, a nation whose laws are inherently unjust. Woe to them, the scripture says. So Jeho Jehoshaphat makes it clear to the nation, if we're going to be a nation that God can bless then we need to be a people that do it as God would have us to do it. If we're truly going to be a people that seek to walk in the ways of God, then it has to begin with the leadership of that nation. We live in a nation of elected leaders. And so I'd encourage you to take this into consideration as you're making determinations as to who your mayor is going to be and who your governor or congressman or president is going to be. It has to begin at the top if God's going to bless that particular nation. If the leaders at the top are not men and women of integrity and people that lead according to the fear of the Lord, or if they're people that make decisions not based on what is popular or because of how it will be an advantage to them, but rather we want leaders that lead because it is the right and the just thing to do. Now if you look at verse 8, in addition to appointing those judges that are going to rule according to the ways of the Lord, Jehoshaphat also appoints sort of a supreme court. Look in verses 8 through 11. It says, Moreover in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord and faithfulness and with all your heart. Whenever a case comes to you from your brothers who live out in the cities concerning bloodshed, law, commandments, statutes, or rules, then you shall warn them that they may not incur guilt before the Lord, and wrath may not come upon you and your brothers. Thus you shall do, and you will not incur guilt. And behold, Amariah the chief priest is over you in all matters of the Lord, and Zebediah the son of Ishmael, the governor of the house of Judah, in all of the king's matters. And the Levites, they will serve you as officers. Deal courageously, and may the Lord be with the upright. So he sort of appoints a Supreme Court. You saw the purpose of them was to decide, much like our Supreme Court, the disputed cases, the difficult cases, those cases that might be perceived to be a little too complicated for the lesser courts. But also notice that these courts and these judges 
We're also charged to give judgment according, verse 9 says, to the fear of the Lord and in faithfulness. And again, this becomes the key to creating this just society. Now, as we move on to chapter 20, it says, Now after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites, they came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from the, beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Now it mentions a sea here, somewhere around verse 2 I guess it is. That sea would be the Dead Sea. So remember that if Israel is sort of this rectangle, on the bottom right hand side of this particular rectangle is the Dead Sea. On the eastern side of that are these cities of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and in my version it says the Meonites. I know some of your other versions word it or say it slightly differently there. But that's where all these folks live. They essentially coexisted with Israel for a period of time, but now for whatever reason they have decided that they would come in great numbers and they would march down probably south of the Dead Sea and they would begin to set themselves up in the southern desert region. It says Hazan Tamar, which is the En Gedi region. This is the region that David ran to to hide when Saul was chasing him, all the rocks and everything that are there. So he go, they go, they gather in this particular place. Large, large numbers. And word filters back into Jerusalem that an enemy army, enemy armies, lots of people have gathered and it appears that they're getting ready to attack Jerusalem. And word comes to Jehoshaphat here and it says that he was afraid. I, I appreciate his response because it's very, very honest. You know, sometimes we get freaked out, we get scared, we get afraid by the circumstances. You remember Solomon when he was named to be the next king. He was a young man. It says he was inexperienced. And David comes to him and he says, look, you don't need to be afraid. And again, the word that is used for afraid in that instance is paralyzed with fear. You might be nervous. You might be scared of this particular job. But don't let it paralyze you. Don't let it bring you to the place where you won't move forward. And here, Jehoshaphat is afraid. Wisely, it says, he seek, set his face to seek the Lord and he proclaimed a fast. And I love him. Remember in chapter 18, when the Syrian army, uh, King Ahab tricked Jehoshaphat, it seems like he tricked him, and he said, you put on the royal robes, and I'll dress as like a normal guy, or whatever. And so when the battle started, everybody chased Jehoshaphat. And he looks back, and there's a million men coming after him. And he, it says that he cries out to the Lord. And I, again, I think the cry was a lot like, ah, help. And so the massive army uh, came against him, and he just simply cried out to God. And God helped him, and he delivered him. As soon as the people saw that it wasn't Ahab, they turned around and they went the other way. And he probably just sat there, and he kind of looked up, and nobody was there anymore. I don't know if that's what it says in the scripture. I'm just using my imagination. You guys are a tough crowd this morning. Everybody okay? Come on. Yeah. So anyway, it continues. Uh, here he has this massive army that comes against him. Three nations, it seems, neighboring nations, they've assembled. They're within the borders. Uh, of the nation of Israel, and it appears they're getting ready to attack Israel, and his response is to be fearful. The NIV, some of you that are reading the NIV, you'll notice it says that he was alarmed. I don't think alarmed is a good word in that instance. That he was more than alarmed. You know, you're alarmed when you hear a noise in the other room or something. He was freaked out is maybe a better translation of what is going on in his heart. 
Anyway, the nation of Israel, it's about to be encompassed, Judah in particular. The sheer numbers are pressing in. They're threatening to overwhelm the city of Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that Jehoshaphat would be fearful. But notice what Jehoshaphat does. And in this case, I love how the NIV words it. It says that he was alarmed. It says, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. He was scared just like each of us would be scared. But in the face of that fear, he determined or he resolved, I'm taking this to the Lord. I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to panic. I'm going to go to the Lord with this. I'm going to lay it out before him, and I'm going to trust him to deal with it. And so after he set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout the land, he gathers up the people of Judah to assemble in Jerusalem at the temple. This is what it says starting in verse 5. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? And did you not, O God, give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and they built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying that if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine... We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And we will cry out to you in our affliction, and that you will hear, and that you will save. So uh, Jehoshaphat is making reference back to a number of things there. At first he says, you gave this land to Abraham. You called him out of a a land 600 miles away and said, come with me. I'm going to bring you to a place that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Did you not, God, promise Abraham a land? And now we're in that land. And when we were in that land, we built a temple to your name. And you guys remember this from our study back in uh, 2 Chronicles, I guess it was, when Solomon had that temple built and they dedicated that somewhere around chapter 7 or 8 of this book that we're studying here, that they prayed. And Solomon prayed. He said, Lord, among other things, it's a long chapter of prayer, but during that time he prayed, he said, Lord, when your people are in trouble, military trouble, just like this, and they look to this house and they cry out to you, then hear your people's cry. And so Jehoshaphat is saying, essentially, God, we have a contract here. We have this temple that is built. You agreed, remember the fire came down from heaven, that when we cried out to you, you would hear us. So God, we're crying out to you at this particular time. And so he goes on, he says, And so, Lord, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us, by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. So when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they essentially, they came across that Red Sea. They were south of Israel, and they made their way south of Israel, and then up the uh, eastern side of the Israel border. So they're on the opposite side of the Dead Sea, and they made their way there. They passed through Moab, they passed through Ammon, all these places, and they never attacked those people. They were just simply passing through to get to their side. You remember they came to Edom, and Edom said, you can't come through here. And they're like, look, we're not going to bother you. We'll give you some money for your, you know, your, your problems or whatever. We won't do anything. And Edom said, no, forget it. You can't come through it. So they went around. They had no intention to bother anybody. They finally made their way opposite of Jericho, and then they entered into the Promised Land in Joshua chapter 1 and 2 and following there. But they didn't do anything to these people. So they're sort of reminding them, well, we didn't do anything to them. 
We didn't provoke them, harass them, and now they're coming to drive us out of your possession. God, you've got a problem. You're going to have to step in and deal with this. He says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? Isn't it interesting? Coming off of the context of those verses I read in chapter 19, where Jehoshaphat is working to create a just society, and now he's calling for justice himself. What if he had a very unjust society? What if everyone just kind of ripped everybody else off and cheated everyone, and then they come to God and say, God, we want justice. I suspect God would say, oh, you do, do you? Why don't you see what it feels like to not have justice for a little while? But anyway, they were just people. They're calling to God for judgment. It says, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us, and we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever been in that place where you were so overwhelmed, so pressed in, that you've come to God and say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, God, but my eyes are on you. Some of us, it comes the beginning of a month or the end of a month when it's time to pay all of our bills. And all the bills lie out there, and you've been trying to be faithful to the Lord in every way, you know, wasting money and all sorts of stuff. But the bills sit there, and you realize the amount of my checkbook is not going to cover all these bills. And perhaps it's in that instance where you throw up your hands or a prayer and you say, God, I don't know what to do. Some of us, we have a child that we love, but they've gone astray. They're, they're doing things that are clearly going to uh, bring harm to their lives here. They're not honoring the Lord or walking in the ways of the Lord, and you're scared, you're concerned for them. And you've been praying and praying and praying, and now you come to the place and say, God, I don't know what to do with this one. Some of us in our marriages... And I suspect many of us, we have times in our marriages where things are great and they're our best friend in the world. And other times you're like, ah, yes, this is tough. You know, this marriage thing. And some of us are in a place in our marriages where we just can't seem to get past difficulties and struggles. And there always seems to be tension uh, between us and our spouse. And you've tried, but nothing seems to be getting any better. And maybe you're at that place where you say, God, I just don't know what to do. Have you ever been so pressed in by the circumstances of life where you just feel, I, I'm going to explode, God. I can't, I can't navigate my way through this. Well, notice some here. I think there's some valuable lessons here that we can learn from Jehoshaphat because he's pressed in. He's responsible for this four million people or whatever it may be in his particular nation, and the enemy is encompassing him. The enemy has all this pressure that has come against him. And so he comes to the Lord and he says, God, I don't know what to do, but notice his eyes are on the Lord. Most of us, many of us, most of the time, our eyes are on all of this stuff that is around us, that is causing us this great stress. And it is there. And I'm not saying, don't ever look at it. You know, you've got to look at it. You've got to write a check or something. You've got to come up with some plan here. But the idea is that his eyes are on the Lord. He's looking to the Lord to provide the solution Oh, God, we don't know what to do. Here's some lessons. Number one, in chapter 20, verse 3, is he resolves to seek the Lord. He determines to seek the Lord. God, I'm not going to blame you for this. Sometimes you're like, God, I'm mad at you. I'm your child. If you really liked me, you'd take all these problems away and make my life sweet and wonderful. But rather than being angry with God and, and all this sort of stuff with God, he says, God, I'm going to look to you the psalmist said, from the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that am higher than I. And who is the rock? Or what is the rock? The rock is a who. Lead me to you, Lord. 
Too often when we're encompassed by the struggles, we're overwhelmed, our tendency is to begin running around. We do all sorts of stuff to try to solve it. I'll do everything, I'll do anything to try and come up with a solution. The lesson of Jehoshaphat is to stop and to be still. To stop all the striving and simply seek the face of God. Now a second lesson from Jehoshaphat is to remind God of his promises. Now it's not as if God forgot. And quite frankly, when you're reminding God, the, really the person you're reminding is yourself of these particular promises. Notice what it says in verses 6 and 7 of our passage. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did, not, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to us, your, your descendants of Abraham, forever? this idea of reminding God that the people of Judah are a covenant people. The Lord had called them out of the prom and into the promised land, and now these foreigners are coming in, and they're threatening to take it all away. And essentially, simply, Jehoshaphat says, God, you've got a problem. I don't know if you're aware, but you've got a problem, God. You're going to have to work on that. And then thirdly, Jehoshaphat, after having brought the problem to God, he leaves the problem with God. Have you ever had wonderful prayer times where you poured out your heart, you gave everything that you had to give to God, and then you sort of packed it all up, and you took it with you uh, after your time of prayer? Well, the idea is, you know what, Lord? It's yours. It's your problem. I'm going to leave it at your feet. God, the bills are too high, and I don't know what to do. God, the challenges are too great, and I'm about to be overwhelmed. God, the struggle is too hard. I feel like giving up. And what we find is, bring the struggles to the Lord, lay them there, and keep them there. There's an old gospel hymn that is entitled, Leave It There. And one of the lines in the song says, Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. That's hard to do. It's one thing to take your burden to the Lord. It's quite another thing to leave it there. Jehoshaphat learns, leave it there. It's God's problem. Now let's continue. Verse 13. It says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, just in case you mixed him up with a different one. And it says, A Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against him. Now, this fellow, Jehaziel, he better be right, you know, because he's coming out in front of everybody, including the king here, and he's saying, it's going to be fine. Go down into the battle. Anyhow, he says, Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Huh. Okay. Stand firm. Hold your position. And see the salvation of the Lord. Sounds like Charlton Heston. Remember that movie there? Come on, folks. Go to bed earlier. You, you need to go to sleep a little earlier and come ready to go on Sunday mornings. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. The people had prayed, and God had responded. And he sends this prophet, Jehaziel, to say, don't be afraid. And, you know, the Lord is going to go down ahead of you. So essentially, God is saying, I've heard your prayer. And I'll take care of it all. Notice in verse 17, through the prophet, God says, you're not going to need to fight in this battle at all. All you need to do is stand firm and watch what God is going to do. 
So here's the difference that has taken place in Jehoshaphat's heart. Remember, initially he was, he was scared, alarmed, as it says in the NIV, but he was freaking out, he was scared. He, he was looking at this whole thing that is out there in front of them. He's crying out to God. He came to God overwhelmed by the circumstances, but after resolving to seek the face and to lay down and leave those burdens there before the Lord, the result was that he leaves with the presence of God. And I think that's the, the secret. We exchange, if you will, the burdens, the, those things that encompass us, and we take the presence of God with us. So now we know, you know, I'm going to go in and the battle's going to be there, but the presence of God is with me. That still voice that says, you know what, I'm with you. I'm going to take you through this. You keep trusting me. You don't have to act out in your own flesh. Just keep trusting me, and I'll bring you through this particular thing. Again, verse 17 says, Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. The presence of God. The difficulties still remain, but the, the condition of Jehoshaphat's heart is completely different. Look at verse 18. It says, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. The, the idea is that because Jehoshaphat was able to come in with such a confidence, everybody else kind of just followed suit. And he led the people. It says, it continues, They rose early in the morning, they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and kind of reminded the people, Hear me, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe, trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Now, no doubt, there were probably some people there that were having difficulty trusting this plan. You know, we're going out there, we're getting closer and closer, and you haven't told me yet what the plan is. You know, what are we doing here? And, and he says, just trust me, believe me. Notice the word that Jehoshaphat uses there. He says the word established. That's a word which could be translated to, to made to stand, to be made to stand, or immovable. So he says, you trust and you believe, you won't be able to be moved because God's going to do this particular work that he said he's going to do. And as you consider the great men and women of faith, both in the scripture as well as in, in life, and that's why I'd recommend read biographies of great um, Christian men and women uh, or watch documentaries, that sort of thing, because it's an encouragement to your faith. And one of the things that we see that sets apart these great men and women of faith from maybe you and I on, on average days, whatever it may be, is that they are a people that didn't just believe with their head a profession of faith, but they had lives of faith. They walked out what it is they believed. They took that step out of the boat, if you will, like Peter did when Jesus said, come on out. He trusted. So they lived out their faith. If you believe, you will be established. And I think the converse is also true. If you do not believe, you will not be established. And again, remember, established is uh, not being able to be moved. And so if we're tossed to and fro by the waves, we're tossed to and fro by the waves. But if we establish ourselves in the word of God and say, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to run this way and that way based on all these things that are coming to me, but I'm going to trust. You won't be moved, the scripture says. When we allow doubt and fear to rule us, we'll never be able to move forward in victory. Now look at verse 21. Here's Jehoshaphat's plan. I guess he sees the people are worried. He said, look, here's what we're going to do. I told you I would tell you. Here's what we're going to do. He says, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy tire as they went before the army 
and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Essentially, he says, we're going to go out, we're going to meet the enemy, God's going to take care of everything. Could I please have the worship team come forward? And the worship team is put up there with their guitars and drum boxes or whatever, and they're going to lead the battle. And again, they're going to sing a song, maybe something like, Our God is greater and our God is stronger. And they're going to move forward. God, you're higher than any other. No doubt some were thinking, this is our plan? to sing a bunch of songs to go into battle. But notice verse 22. When they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end to the, of, the inhabitants of, Seir, uh, of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Just as God had said that he was going to go before the children of Israel and give them victory. All they would really need to do, honestly, is go up and clean the mess up afterwards when God was done. Take the spoil from the battlefield. Look at it again, verse 22. It says, the Lord set an ambush. It appears that a fourth nation comes on the scene. They're hiding in the bushes or something. They see all of these other nations that are gathering against Israel, and all of their attention is facing this way, and they come up behind them. It's not Israel that ambushes, or Judah that ambushes these particular people, but it seems that another army comes on the scene. And whatever their motivation was, I wouldn't like them either, whatever, whatever their motivation was, God was using it to accomplish his purposes. And so in verse 23, it says that the ambush kind of threw the nations into disarray. They don't know who they're fighting. And now the Moabs be, Moabites begin to kill the Ammonites, and the Ammonites begin to kill the people from Mount Seir, and everybody's out there just killing each other and dying, and Israel is standing up on a hill, Judah, I should say, up on a hill watching this whole thing, thinking, oh my God, God, you did it. I had no idea how you were going to do it. Sing louder! You know, and the worship team is singing and singing here. They didn't have to lift a finger, and God was able to take care of their problem. Take your burden to the Lord, and leave it there. I had a situation last night. I can't tell you all the, the details of it uh, because it involves other people. But it was a situation where I wanted to take my burden and I wanted to do something with it. And I was going to let some people know about it. And, and rather, I said, well, I don't want to make a scene. You know, so maybe I'll make something of it later on around it. But just in sort of leaving it there before the Lord and saying, God, just help me to be nice. You know, and kind of just leaving it there before the Lord. The Lord worked out all of the circumstances, and I didn't have to say a word to make a fool of myself in any way. Take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there and then stand back and watch what God's going to do. And God does it here. He accomplishes it. Verse 24, Now when Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked to the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakah to this day. Barakah means blessing, or it could mean the place to declare the blessing. So there, it's like, God, you're amazing. Not just because of all this stuff that is here, but because you taught us a valuable lesson that even when we are overwhelmed by the worst of circumstances, we can trust you. We can bring it to you. We can leave it there and know that you're going to be able to step forward and accomplish what it is you need to accomplish. Verse 27, Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat at their head, 
returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Verse 31, Thus Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and he did not turn aside from doing it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. The high places, however, were not taken away. The people had not yet set their hearts upon the God of their fathers. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, from first to last, are written in the chronicles of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which are recorded for us in the books of the kings of Israel. And so comes the end of this good man's life. He was not perfect. He made mistakes, as we saw a few examples of already. But overall, he was a man that was courageous and that he wanted to do, uh, wanted to commit himself to the ways of the Lord. And I think he's an excellent example uh, for us because most of us, I'm sure, in this room were men, were women, were young people, were committed to God. We sincerely want to do that which is right. But like Jehoshaphat, sometimes we find ourselves, because of poor decisions that we make, stumbling along. Prayerless decisions, stumbling along. So Jehoshaphat serves as a model for both what to do and what not to do. And the scripture gives us plenty of examples of, of people like that. And so I'd encourage you, learn the valuable lessons from him. Those that are sort of more corrective, learn those, don't make the same mistakes. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, in speaking to the churches, he, he sort of commends some churches, and he rebukes some of those churches there. There's seven of them that are listed. But at the end of every one of those letters to those churches, the scripture says, Now he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I think the Lord today, this morning, this is sort of like a letter from the Lord to each of us. And if you have an ear to hear, if your heart, not your ear, but if your heart is open to receive from the Lord, let him speak to your heart. Maybe you've been overwhelmed or allowing yourself to be overwhelmed by a particular thing. Maybe you want to take circumstances into your own hand, get ahead of the Lord, and get yourself into all sorts of troubles. I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord today, but if you have an ear to hear, then hear what the Spirit is trying to say to us as a church. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for Jehoshaphat. Lord, we appreciate godly role models. And we appreciate this fellow, Lord, uh, showing us the lesson of take your burden to the Lord and leaving it there. Lord, would you show us uh, increasingly, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, make application to our hearts? Lord, sitting in a room, 150 people, every one of us is unique and different. Every one of us is dealing with different circumstances, either now or we will in the future. And everyone is bringing different life uh, experiences into those circumstances which cause us to react in a slightly different way. And so, Lord, we need the Holy Spirit of God to take the Word of God that we've uh, read this morning and apply it to our hearts. Lord, we need your still small voice to come and to speak in such a way that it is so recognizable that we know that this is the way that I should go. And so I should go down that path. Father, bring your word alive within our hearts. Cause it to resonate. 
Lord, cause us to be a people that meditate on your word day and night. As it says there in Joshua. And grow us, Lord. We want to be more like you. That's why we've come today. That's why we gather with the saints. And so we can see you more clearly and walk in your ways more clearly. Conform us, Lord. Transform us, actually, into your image, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.